covenant. Um, There really is no better way to interpret the Old Testament than through the covenants. What a covenant is, it's a promise uh, usually uh, made between a higher king and a lesser vessel. And that Um, In the first century culture, it was made between a king of a greater nation through a king to a lesser nation. uh, And they promised one another that they would have each other's backs, essentially, uh, with the one given in power, uh, making the covenant with the one who was lesser. If that lesser king ever betrayed the trust of the greater king, there would be curses that fall upon that particular party. And yet, if they held the promise, the covenant... There would be blessings. And so uh, the Bible actually, again, gives us all of these covenants in the Old Testament as a means by which to see God communicate his promises to his people. We've looked at several already. Uh, We have the Edemic covenant, covenant made with Adam, that Adam was to fill the earth with, fill and form the earth. There was a promise that contained, as we saw last week, land, seed, and blessing. And that was what was lost in Genesis chapter 3. We lost the land, the presence of God, and the garden of of Eden. We lost uh, the seed. Now there's going to be uh, enmity between the serpent seed and our seed. We lost the blessing of being living under God's rule. And yet God holds fast to his covenant. He promises in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that he is going to bring one who is going to bring about land, seed, and blessing once again. And he reiterates this to his people through the promises. The next covenant we see is the Noahic covenant, which essentially says, okay, let's start this over because it didn't go very well, right? Uh, Which essentially says, Again, you are to be fruitful and multiply. You restore and fill and form this land. Let's start over. And yet what we see from Genesis 6 to 11 is that they can't really do that, can they? They're still corrupt with sin all over. And so God makes the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12 where he promises Abraham that no longer is there going to be one particular seed. It's going to be a people through whom this seed will come and all the nations of the world will be blessed through that people. That people, of course, being Israel. But then we see that Israel fails. They can't bring forth the land, seed, and blessing. In fact, they continually rebel against their God. Uh, So God God decides, okay, I'll give them the law. And that's where we're introduced to the Mosaic covenant. If they obey this law, then they will be blessed. If they disobey this law, then they will be cursed. And what happens with Israel? Israel continually disobey the law. And now something wonderful has happened. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see the Davidic covenant. And what I want you to notice this morning, uh, really as we've kind of come under this Davidic covenant for three weeks, is that God's promises always prevail. In the midst of this, even though God has a people who have been continually unfaithful to him, God has remained faithful and steadfast to his people because his promise is at stake and his promises prevail. So with that being said, if you found your place in 2 Samuel chapter 7, would you stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to again read verses 14 through 15 and verse 21 this morning. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Verse 21. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, we thank you and praise you, for you are worthy of all of our adoration. 
But Father, we praise you and thank you for redeeming your people by sending your Son to make your love manifest to them. Not that we loved you, but you first loved us and sent us your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so, Lord, we gather this morning because we know and we proclaim that your, <clears throat> that your promise prevails. Would you help us to see it more clearly? Would you help us to live in a manner worthy of it? We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What we find here, again, in 2 Samuel 7, is that God's promise prevails. It has prevailed. It is currently prevailing. And it will always prevail. Again, two weeks ago, as we took up this passage, we consider it more generally. We came to the conclusion that really the main idea of 2 Samuel 7 and 8 is that God is far more faithful than we think, therefore... Our confidence in him should be higher than it is. And as we continue to unpack this passage, we, we see that everything really supports that primary thesis. God is faithful. In fact, he's far more faithful than we even realize on our very best day. So, we should be more confident than we are. And hopefully, as we move through this passage week after week, that's one of the results that will take place between you and I. That we will grow in our confidence, not in our confidence in self, but our confidence in the Lord. Last week, we consider the promise of salvation. Again, that special content of salvation as we find in the Old Testament of the covenant that is seed, land, and blessing. In order to see how those are carried forth in this Davidic covenant. God's people, his seed, and God's place, the land... Under God's rule, that is, blessing, or as we might refer to it, the kingdom of God. This week, we'll consider how this passage teaches us that his promise prevails. And we're going to see lots and lots of texts that really help us understand that God's promise always prevails. We're going to do this under a couple of headings and subpoints. So if you have uh, your bulletin in front of you, if you have a notepad, please make sure you're writing these down as we can stay engaged and we do our part to worship this morning. The first thing we need to understand is this. Israel is the immediate fulfillment of the land, seed, and blessing promise. Uh, Israel is the immediate fulfillment of the land, seed, and blessing promise. I know that sounds confusing from what we talked about in the covenants, but bear with me here. Uh, remember, uh, that promise to Israel is, where, uh, is, is found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Again, this is one of those texts we have to keep coming back to because it's that pivotal for understanding the Old Testament. Israel actually fulfills this promise. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 with me. It says this. Notice if you, I want you to point out here land, seed, and blessing as we read this, okay? Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice there, uh, the blessing synonymous by the way with making a great name. 
See, uh, the deal is that as God blesses the man of his own choosing, his name is made great because he has success. Remember that great name, it's the very promise that David's received in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Indeed, his name is going to be great by the end of chapter 8. But, but notice also from this text that Genesis 12 has a purpose and goal. What, what's the purpose and goal of the covenant of Abraham? Blessing for all of the families of the earth. Blessing would flow from the seed of Abraham to the rest of the nations. And and really, the Bible is about the fulfillment of that very promise. In fact, I want to take it up at another place in Genesis chapter 15. Here we find it put into covenant form again. In in Genesis 15, Abraham tells God, God, I really appreciate that that covenant you made with me, that that promise and the blessing, but but all that, it's really just going to be passed to my servant, Eleazar, because I've got no seed, Lord. So the Lord responds with this in Genesis 15, verse 5. Then he brought him, being Abram, outsider Abraham, and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Down in verse 7 of chapter 15 we read, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Verse 18, On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Land seed and blessing. This is what was promised in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and it continues to be passed from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and to Israel. Then we move forward a little bit in the redemptive timeline and we go to Joshua chapter 21 and this is what we read in Joshua chapter 21. It says this, so the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. And and get this, verse 45, Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. See, let me just pause there and make sure we're all on the same page, okay? A promise was made and a promise was fulfilled. Israel was the immediate fulfillment of that land, seed, and blessing. But but this is critical to understand, and here's kind of the problem. It's not going to sound like a problem when I say it, uh, but it's going to be a problem if we understand the rest of the story. Uh, The problem is this fulfillment is a type. It's not the real thing. It's not the goal, it's, it's going forward to a real thing. That's the second thing we kind of see here, is that this fulfillment of Israel, it's really a type. You can think of it as a prophecy, but it's, it's like a dramatic prophecy that points beyond itself to something bigger. Namely, the establishment of the kingdom of God throughout all the earth. I mean, that's the promise. That's what we find in Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 12, 1 and 3. And again, in the covenant made between the Lord and Abraham in Genesis 15. Guys, again, this is so fundamental to the entire biblical storyline. Just, just know this. In, in Joshua, according to the word of the Lord, not one word of the Lord has failed to come to pass. 
fulfilled in Joshua, and yet the conquest led by Joshua, bringing the people of Israel into the promised land, it fell short. It falls short of the serpent crushing worldwide blessing promise that we hear both in the garden and to Abraham. We tracking so far? All right, well, let's continue. If you're familiar with this story, you realize at this point, well, that the rest of Israel's history is not great. Um, In fact, not only is this fulfillment of type, but really the fulfillment doesn't lead to a new garden that expands and fills the whole earth. that's, That's part of the problem here. The fulfillment doesn't lead to a new garden that expands and fills the whole earth. Just turn on the news if you don't believe me. Right? We're not there yet. Uh, but what's interesting is in the book of Joshua, we actually find the reason why we're not there yet. At the very end of that same book where it just tells us that all that God said has come to pass, look what it says in Joshua chapter 23, verses 14 through 16. At the end of Joshua, we read this. Behold, this day, I'm going all the way, uh, I'm going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. Therefore it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you've transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. When they do what? When they break the covenant and go and serve other gods. So he says, okay, all has been fulfilled, but if you transgress the covenant, if you break the covenant, it's all going to be taken away. All of it. Seed, lost. Land, destroyed. Blessing becomes cursed. It's the reverse of the fulfillment. And the reality is, we must understand that this is not God's fault. In fact, that's really one of the things we need to understand here is that God has upheld his end of the covenant. That's that's what we see. God has upheld his end of the covenant. And that's a problem for the unfaithful man. He has fulfilled his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, physically, typically, temporarily, that's the world we're in when we're thinking about the Old Testament. There is this undercurrent that's moving us toward the anti-type of every type. The the real and final fulfillment of every promise. These are pointing towards something greater than themselves. And so God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not one word has failed from that promise, so says the scriptures. But if they transgress the covenant, they'll lose everything. All the evil, that's the polar opposite of blessing, will come to pass upon Israel until they are destroyed and cut off from the good land. So let's pause for a moment. Consider what we've seen so far. Israel is a testimony to the entire world that there is no hope without God and his faithfulness. In fact, as we just, we just peruse through Israel's unfaithfulness to this covenant, we see three really major strikes here. There's a lot more, but three major strikes. The first is, 
Israel broke covenant with their Lord before the ink was even dry. (laughs) Know that. Israel broke covenant with their Lord before the ink was dry on that covenant. This is talking about the Mosaic covenant. You remember what happened there? It's at Mount Sinai (laughs) that, that God makes a covenant with Moses and said, They shall not serve other gods. And he comes down off of Mount Sinai to see Israel serving another god, right? And listen, that's not unimportant. It's, it's actually very telling. Really, the scene there, if you're not familiar with it, the scene is it's a bride having an affair at her own wedding reception. That's the scene. That's what transpires. The covenant has barely been established and Israel is already breaking the greatest commandment. And so according to the very covenant... The result for this people should be death, exile, all the different ways in which the cursing is to unfold. But what instead takes place? Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel. And and how? He appeals to God's character, his reputation, his name in the world. And he appeals to God's promise. See, here's what's interesting is in the book of Exodus, when this all goes down, Moses doesn't go, whoa, 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 remember God, remember the covenant you just made. You know what he says? He says, God, remember your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, please. So we have the affair that takes place at the wedding reception, but surely Israel's going to recover from all that, right? It's going to be all good from there, isn't it? No. In fact, the second strike we see very clearly in this threat of redemption is in Numbers chapter 14, where Israel refuses to enter the garden sanctuary. The faithfulness of God has given them the promised land on a platter. All they have to do is trust in the Lord their God. And you remember what happens in number 14? The 12 spies of Israel, 10 of them say, no way. (laughs) Just, Just think about that. The Lord gives the land to Israel and they refuse to enter it. Israel is like a son despising his birthright and selling it for a bowl of stew back in Egypt. It's worse than that. Israel is like a son yelling false accusations about his father out in the streets in the midst of a neighborhood accusing him of evil acts and intentions. And yet what do we see? Moses then intercedes again. Not appealing to the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai. But again, appealing to God's name and reputation in all the earth. Moses goes to God and says, God, what will Egypt say? And he appeals to his promise. This time it's not the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the promise, Lord, you made to me, Moses. The promise you made when you said you are slow to anger and abounding in love, steadfast love. He appeals to God's own self-revelation, his own character, And then you just keep following that thread. And here we arrive as where our context is in 1 Samuel chapter 8. What we have in 1 Samuel chapter 8 is Israel rejecting the Lord from being king over them. Now if you're counting, that's strike three. If you really want to get technical again, it's like strike 3,000. But we skipped over a bunch. Israel, conscious of her actions demands that she be led by a man like the great ones on planet earth. Not Yahweh. Israel is like a man saved from the pit, accusing his rescuer of being his enemy and climbing right back down into the pit. Or like a woman rescued from abusive relationship, only wanting to return to her abuser. 
Israel is a holy nation preferring unholiness. It's treason in the highest order. There's there's no government among men, none that I'm aware of throughout the history of mankind, that if the constituents of said kingdom acted the way Israel did with their God, would survive the night. So don't miss the scope of the accusation in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 8. The Lord actually speaking to Samuel about Israel says this, According to all the works which they've done since the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they've forsaken me and served other gods. When did Israel serve other gods? From the time they came out of Egypt to about ever. So, so Here's a question for us that I need us to consider. Why are we tempted at times to believe we're better than Old Testament Israel? I mean, I mean really. I don't, I don't want to be overly harsh. But Israel and the Old Testament's a train wreck. <laughs> it's hard to watch. We didn't even take up the book of Judges. Israel has seen the wonderful works of God. They heard the words of the Lord. Israel has the experience that begs the soul of the nation and every individual in it to trust their God. She's cried out over and over. She's been rescued over and over. But she is the proverbial dog who returns to her vomit. I mean, in this sense, I would actually argue that we too are like Israel in this way. Now again, if if you are in Christ, to be fair, the correct terminology is you were like Israel. But the reality is there is still some of that residue in each and every one of us. At least in the sense that, that you and I had an incurable disease. Now there's all sorts of ways in which we aren't like Israel. For instance, we were separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the promise. There's one sense in which our condition was actually worse. See, if Israel had Yahweh himself walking with them, how much worse was our state? How much more incurable was our incurable disease? Listen, you you need to recognize this as you read the Old Testament. You you recognize that that if God had descended in a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night right outside your door, you would have eventually explained away the phenomenon. You recognize that? It's important that you do. If God had sent a thousand men to knock on your door day after day to remind you that he is king, that life and happiness depend upon obeying and trusting him, you and I would have ignored most of them. And when I say most of them, I mean we would have beaten the rest of them and shot a bunch more. Listen, don't you see this? You were just as dull, blind, cruel, unfaithful, and without hope apart from the intervention of God himself as the nation of Israel. Now, we're about to turn a very important corner here. And your joy and gratitude at at what we're about to see, I think, is in measure to how well you understand what you were. That's why we have to go through those things. Because your humility and love will depend on your grasp of how hopeless your situation was apart from the sovereign and saving work of our God. 
And I'm saying that that's because that's what God's word does. In fact, I'm going to argue in more so the ensuing weeks that this is the primary function of the Mosaic Covenant. The primary function of the covenant God makes with Moses, I believe, is that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. To reveal that to us. Now follow me here. We need to understand the principle of these covenants. In fact, one thing we need to understand more than anything is that the Mosaic Covenant is different than the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants in one crucial way. The Mosaic Covenant, it is different than the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants in one crucial way. In fact, it's a really important difference that if you miss it, it's going to cause all sorts of confusion for you. Now, hear me. The Mosaic Covenant is a gracious covenant. And it's like the Abrahamic in the sense that it requires obedience. But there is an important and fundamental difference. The mechanism of covenant fulfillment is different in the Abrahamic Covenant than it is in the Mosaic Covenant in one crucial way. In fact, I would say there's a different principle at the very heart of the Mosaic Covenant. Which makes it necessarily temporary. Let me show you. The principle is this. If I can just state it in the simplest of terms. The principle of the Mosaic Covenant is do this and live. That's the principle at the heart of God's covenant with Moses and the people of Israel. Do this and live. We find it in Exodus chapter 19 verse 5. I want you to pay attention here. It says, now therefore, and this next word is very, very crucial. Now therefore, if. If, 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 if. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Did you see the if there? So if you obey me, you will be. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 through 20 says it again. It says, I call heaven and earth as witness today against you, that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. That you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him. That's the condition. For he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Seed, land, and blessing depend upon obeying the voice and holding fast to him. That's the principle at work. Israel was formed by this covenant. Their continued existence as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, it depended upon this principle, do this and live, don't do this and die. Now, I want to take some time just to say praise be to God that this is only the backdrop. In fact, this is the backdrop against which the steadfast love of God is revealed more clearly. If we were still living under this covenant, friends... We'd have no opportunity to rejoice today. (laughs) So we asked a question. Think about it. Why wasn't the unfaithful bride who commits adultery at her wedding reception stoned to death? Honestly, remember? They, they, They broke the covenant before the ink was dry. Why weren't they immediately punished there? Why does she not die? Why isn't she cut off? If we ask that question, do we have any appeal to the Mosaic covenant whatsoever? No, not according to the Mosaic Covenant, no. That ministry actually demanded death. That ministry, the Mosaic Covenant, condemned. 
It meant she would have to take up the cup with the curse and drink it down to its dregs. That's what the covenant demands. So why then does she not die? See, when we answer that first question rightly, it helps us to understand the next question. If you look at the title of the sermon, the answer is because his promise prevails. In fact, look at it in Exodus chapter 32, verses 11 through 14. I want you to see it. Moses pleaded with the Lord, and what grounds again does he plead with him on? Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I've spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. The promise prevails. And really, you could just trace this throughout the entire Old Testament. As you've promised, Moses said, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness, not of the Mosaic covenant, but according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Do you know what covenant Moses is appealing to there? If it's not, if it's God's steadfast love, then it finds its roots actually in the covenant of redemption that was made before the foundation of the world. That's what Moses appeals to. Moses doesn't appeal to the people. He doesn't say, listen, Lord, they they messed up. Just, Just give them another shot. They'll do better next time. He's been dealing with this stiff necked people for years. He says, please, according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Don't you see? 1 Samuel actually begs the same question. When they reject the Lord from being king, the Lord himself says, so since they've left Egypt until this day, they've served other gods. And then they say with their own mouths, Give us a king like a king of the nations. We want nothing else but to be like the nations. The very thing they're prohibited from doing. I mean, listen, their treachery and transgression couldn't be more clear, could it? The covenant stipulations are clearly disobeyed. So we must ask the question, why isn't this unholy nation cut off from the land? Because the promise prevails. And so now we arrive at 2 Samuel chapter 7. And here's why all of this is so important. Because there's a real sense in which this is the last declaration of covenants of promise here. In 2 Samuel 7. That that David is therefore evidence of God's unrelenting promise to bless the whole world. That's what we find in 2 Samuel 7. God is making it clear both through his word and his deed that he is unrelenting in his purposes to bless the entire world. And friends, let me tell you, it should be extremely encouraging for people who have woke up to a world that's been turned upside down in every single possible way. Have you felt that? You realize that at the end of the day, even if everything changed, nothing changes. Did you recognize that? Why? You know what I'm going to say right now, right? Because the promise prevails. David is evidence of that. Even as Israel is about to go the way of Adam, of every other Adam, the promise to Abraham comes to complete immediate fulfillment through David. 
Now, we're going to spend a little bit more time here coming, in the coming weeks. So I don't have to say everything, but I do want to point this out. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15. Look what it says here. It says, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. So, so you have here the establishment of the kingdom of promise in the full extent of the land. So that there is rest on every side. Here is the physical, typical, temporary fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. You have in 815 God's people in God's place under God's rule. The nations have become servants of David, servants of Israel. And this covenant is a response, I would argue, to Israel's failure to keep the Mosaic Covenant. This covenant with David, it reestablishes the entire project, but this time not on works, but promise. The Mosaic covenant bound everything under sin and demanded the debt of sin be paid. Now again, it's, it's a gracious covenant, but, but know this, it's intentionally ineffective. We see this throughout all the New Testament. That's why the New Testament writers argued, according to Hebrews chapter 7 verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. According to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4, it says, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So obeying the law, keeping the law could not take away sins. Instead, the law actually increases sin, according to Paul in Romans chapter 5.20, where it says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So, so get this. Samuel, like the rest of the Hebrew Bible, teaches that the law, as it's presented on those tablets of stone, is a ministry of death, binding everything under sin and demanding the death of every hearer. That's its primary function according to the redemptive narrative. But get this. The Davidic covenant, what we read here in 2 Samuel 7, it's the declaration and communication of the promise. It's an immediate answer to this ministry of death. It's not a temporary covenant. It's a promise that the serpent crushing seed would again fill the, fill the earth with the offspring of God. Now, just as a Mosaic covenant is gracious, even though its function is to bind everything under sin, doesn't sound gracious. The, the Davidic covenant also requires obedience. It's not a lawless covenant. In fact, the law uh, and demands the law of Moses will be kept, lest the payment of transgression be ex extracted from the son of David. That's what we find in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 14. Look at what it says. I will be his father... And he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. So, I want you to see this. Again, obedience is required, but here's the key. The principle is different. Like the Abrahamic covenant. It's not, do this and live. The principle of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant is this. I will do this so that you will live. <laughs> I will do this so that you will live. That's the difference, by the way. The promise will prevail. I will do this so your kingdom will never be shaken, so that your throne will never be removed. The Davidic covenant.
covenant declares that the Lord, who walks through the blood and animal carcasses in order to ratify the covenant with Abraham, that same faithful Lord is declaring to David that not even David's own sin will subvert the fulfillment of the promise he made to him in 2 Samuel 7. Now that may not be a big deal to us living in the new covenant, but friends, if you're living under the Mosaic covenant, it's a huge deal. One last point. I want you to see this. When, when he commits iniquity, he says, I will discipline him with a rod of men. Now that sounds a lot like what we just talked about in the Mosaic covenant, doesn't it? No. Why? Well, what do we know about who God disciplines? He disciplines who? Yeah. Those whom he loves. But second, I want you to see that the very next verse, God makes a distinction. Look at verse 15 of chapter 7 that we read earlier. This is so key. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. See, something different happened between the Lord and Saul and the Lord and David. Where do you place that difference? What is it that's different? Now, I think the temptation is to place it on Saul and David themselves. Right? I mean, you look at Saul and his failures and you say, you know what? This is a man that chose expedience over obedience. But guys, David coveted his neighbor's wife. He took her. He committed adultery and then he murdered his neighbor in an attempt to cover it up. So so we can't display the difference based on the grounds of Saul and David themselves, can we? So what's the difference? Some will argue that, you know what, David repented afterwards. But what you need to understand is David repented because David was already saved. See, David responds differently because here's the difference. David is operating by the principle of promise and faith. Saul is not. Saul's heart is uncircumcised and Saul is still operating under the law. So Saul transgresses the law. Saul receives in himself the penalty for breaking the law. What's the difference? God's promise. What's the difference? God's grace. What's the difference? God's mercy. What's the difference? It's God. It's always God. And David knows it. David doesn't say, it's because I've been faithful to you, Lord, that you've kept your promises to me. David doesn't say it's because I'm a lot like you, God. We got the same kind of hobbies. We both like sheep and so on. No, What does he say? He says, why have you done this? Because of your promise. (laughs) Friends, let me ask you, why are we sitting here together on a Sunday morning? Why are we forgiven? Why do we have eternal life? Why do we have one another? Why are we actually able to please our Father? Because he promised. That's it. Listen, we've got two more weeks to finish unpacking these things. But for now, I simply want us to see that the only reasonable and biblical explanation for these things is that there are two entirely different principles at work in these covenants. One is, do this and live. The other is, the Lord will do this so that you live. One is based on works, the other is based on faith. Though both contain works and faith. 
One is a guardian tutoring God's people in the futility of their own self-righteousness, instructing them in their desperate need for a redeemer. The other is a promise of a righteous redeemer who will come and live the law perfectly for them. A righteousness that is not their own and a forgiveness that we can never earn or deserve. One leads to eventual exile of Judah. One leads to the bringing in of many sons and daughters to glory. One leads to condemnation and death. The other to mercy and grace that abounds at the end of the redemptive story of the Hebrew Bible. Listen, the promise is still prevailing and it's going to prevail all the way to the end when it is consummated on the day that the Lord Jesus returns. At the end of the day, when you're counting your blessings, your bank account doesn't matter. The U.S. economy doesn't matter. The state of our government doesn't matter. Now, don't take this to extreme. I'm not telling you to go home and hang out into your, in your room until Jesus returns. But the reality is, what matters is we serve a God who is faithful to his promise. So why don't we live like it? Because here's the reality. Those differences I just expressed in those covenants, we long for some reason our behavior to be part of this covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. We long in our workspace attitude to say, you know what? I'm going to be really good for God today so I'll reserve, re- receive his blessings. Friends, you don't do that. That will lead to death. You'll never be good enough. The demand is, is perfection and guess what? You've already blown it. There's no being good enough to earn the righteousness of God, but praise be to God because of his promise, Christ came and did it for you. So rest in Him. Trust in Him. Receive the promises of God and live them out. Live with them in front of you, understanding that which you are guaranteed because of the faithfulness of our God. Boy, you talk about your confidence being higher than it is. Are you kidding me? We serve the Lord who has never once broken a promise to His people. So why is our view of Him and our confidence in Him so low that the moment our world is shaken by the tiniest little thing on the speck of history, we have no place else we see we seem to go? We just flail around like, like Sammy sheep on our back, blood rushing from our, our legs, not being able to turn upside down. Our souls are downcast. Friends... <sighs> He's faithful to his promises. See, the reality is, the problem is, we don't even know what he's promised us. We want to look for what this world guarantees us to promise. What has this world promised you? Honestly, apart from Christ, what are you guaranteed in this world? I'll tell you what you're guaranteed. Sorrow, heartache, death. Sure, glimpses of joy here and there. But nothing so everlasting as the beauty of the gospel. Nothing so worth giving your life to as what's coming for all eternity in Christ. Friends, the application is simple. Simple to say, not simple to live out. You and I, you know who we are? We are a people of the promise. We are. Do you know what God has promised you in this life through his word? It's not, it's not blessings here on earth that we define them as just physical stuff. What he's promised us is life eternal with him. And the reality is the problem why we, we, don't, we don't view that as enough is because we really, we really don't want him. We don't really don't see that God promising us himself for all eternity is the best possible scenario. 
We know that his promise has always prevailed. His promise is prevailing and his promise will prevail. The reality is, look, there are more uncertainties in our country and culture that I can count. In just the last two years, if I were to list the uncertainties in our culture and country, it would exhaust you. But I do know this. Nothing of eternal significance has changed from this year to last year. Did you know that? You guys don't need a different message or a different gospel. You need to remember that his promise prevails. Hail King Jesus. Let's stand together as we close. Gracious Father, Lord, we're so easily tossed to and fro by all sorts of winds of doctrines. We often think of those terms and we think of them as they regard to theological arguments, but Father, the reality is the lies of this world often seduce your children. And, and, And Lord, I'm living that this week and struggling and wrestling with it. Father, forgive us. Help us remember that your promise prevails. Lord, that's not just a slogan. It's a very fundamental truth for our lives. Father, we live on this side of the cross. We know with even greater certainty, for we have the promise accomplished. But even as we await its full fulfillment, its its consummation, would you help us to be a people who know And have confidence that your promise prevails. And we would live in a manner that's actually worthy of that truth. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.